We are in our series in Nehemiah. We're going to be wrapping up this series soon. As a book, Nehemiah can be divided into two sections. The first section consists of chapters 1 through 6, and the second section consists of chapters 7 through 13. We just finished a series through the first section, and this morning we're going to abbreviate abbreviate the first part of the second section of Nehemiah. In the first half of Nehemiah, there was the construction phase, and in the second half, there's the consolidation phase. That means that at this point in this book, Nehemiah has had to shift his focus from constructing this wall around Jerusalem to consolidating Jerusalem. To consolidate means to bring something all together and strengthen it for continued development. And since this construction project was now finished, Nehemiah's assignment was that he was no longer acting as a general contractor. Um, uh, He was now uh, pulling the people all together and completing the different infrastructures that were needed to fully reestablish Jerusalem. This was a critical juncture because this project had been a tremendous success. Uh, There had been uh, opposition at each turn and still the people overcame that and were determined and put this wall together in 52 days. And there was now this temptation for Nehemiah and his people to just relax and coast. No matter what someone's success is, graduating from college, completing a home improvement project, going from sitting on the bench to the starting lineup, restoring a marriage. No matter what someone's success is, the problem in achieving success is that our successes can sometimes have a negative effect on us because after we achieve something significant, we often start becoming satisfied We become complacent and lose the momentum that we had built up in order to do what we did. Sidney Harris said this, Our real enemies are the people that make us feel so good about what we have done that we are slowly pulled down into the quicksand of smugness and self-satisfaction. And I agree, that can happen. What we're going to examine this morning is one of the reasons businesses sometimes go bankrupt, organizations sometimes crumble, and churches stagnate. It's what we're calling the problem of transition. This transitional problem is that an organization is situated and on schedule to advance to the next stage, but the principal leader, the one over that organization, doesn't have the abilities to bring it there. If that particular organization is a church, such as us, then the congregation suffers and stagnates. The individual that brought initial success to a particular congregation has to have the abilities that are needed to perpetuate that success. And if he doesn't, then someone else that does probably should succeed him. Someone has said there are two basic categories of leaders. The first one is called the catalyst. The catalyst. And the catalyst is the person that gets things going. He is able to overcome inertia 
and build organizational momentum. Then the second type is the consolidator. The consolidator, this is the person that keeps things going. The catalyst is the creator and designer, and the consolidator is the developer. He develops what the designer has created. The catalyst is the entrepreneur type that starts something, and the consolidator is more of the executive that continues to run the operation moving forward. Both of these categories are needed in business, uh, in the corporate community, um, in organizations, in the church. In the beginning phase, catalysts are needed to get something off the ground. In the consolidation phase, the need is for someone else to manage the continuation and forward movement of that organization. The biblical character Paul was a catalyst. He is considered a catalytic church planter. His longest tenure as a pastor um, was at Ephesus. Paul didn't spend more than three years at a particular location. He would establish a congregation and then turn it over to someone else that would be more of a consolidator and then move on to start another church. On a personal basis, I have been a catalyst. Um, I have been, I've taken numerous uh, evaluations. Um, I've spoken to numerous men who know these things and that's how I am described. That's how God has hardwired me. I have started four churches, one in 1975, a second one in 1980, a third one in 1987, and then a fourth one in 2000. And in starting those congregations, I acted as a catalyst. Then we came here in June 2012. We've been here almost one decade. And I needed to continue that catalytic mindset once we arrived because at that time, this church didn't resemble this. This church needed a serious, serious turnaround. This was a revitalization project. I often called it a resurrection project. Um, but it was, we, we, we weren't doing well. And God enabled us to do that and to build momentum. This church is at this moment, though, at a different juncture in need of more of a consolidator and not so much a catalyst. The question is, am I able to do what Nehemiah did? Am I able to transition from being a catalyst to becoming more of a consolidator? I'm not sure, I'm doing my best, but time will tell. Nehemiah was able to do that. Nehemiah transitioned from being a catalyst to a consolidator. He made this transition from being the catalytic type that had the initiative uh, to start up this construction project to where now he was consolidating Jerusalem. This section from Nehemiah 7 records for us three important steps that Nehemiah took in order to pull off this transition and in doing that protect both his people and the construction project that had been completed. Step one is that Nehemiah enlisted leadership. Nehemiah enlisted leadership once this construction project had been completed, Nehemiah then needed, in order to consolidate things in Jerusalem, he needed to recruit leaders. And this is found beginning in Nehemiah 7, starting at verse 1. Then it was, when the wall was built, past tense, the project has been completed. And I, Nehemiah, had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. Verse 2 that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, 
the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Verse 3, and I said to them, meaning Nehemiah said to both men, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Nehemiah understood that he could not do this consolidation job alone, so he started selecting specific persons to assist him. After the reconstructed wall had been erected, the first thing he did was to appoint two personal assistants. His personal assistants were Hanani and Hananiah. Uh, it seems that Hanani was Nehemiah's actual biological brother. And remember in Nehemiah 1 and verse 2, he was one of the men that gave him the initial report about the devastation of Jerusalem. And that gave Nehemiah the impetus to want to correct that problem and and the rest is history. Both Hanani and Hananiah were recruited to become Nehemiah's personal assistants. There was reason, good reason for Nehemiah to feel that these men could be capable leaders. There was more to that than just a hunch. Notice that the last part of the second verse reads, for he, Hanani, was a faithful man and feared God more than many. The verse is worded such as to give us the impression that that same st statement made about Hanani was also accurate about Hanani's friend Hananiah. It seems that both men possessed two essential characteristics, and those characteristics were faithfulness and a fear of God. Notice these men first demonstrated faithfulness. Someone has defined faithfulness as Quote, fulfilling what I agreed to do, even though it could require from me an unexpected sacrifice. One more time, that is an unusual definition most of us have never heard. Fulfilling what I agreed to do, even though it could require from me an unexpected sacrifice. Not being faithful is probably the most common problem I encounter in ministering to people. It's more than just epidemic. It is pandemic, meaning that this problem is all around us. I believe I am faithful most all the time, but there are some times I do struggle in being faithful. Let me mention some practical suggestions for being more faithful, and this is a quick list. Start small. Start with something as small as cleaning off a desk and then maintaining it in that same condition. Now, I have been under the impression that a cluttered desk was a sign of genius. That's what I was told. And so I bought into that. And so that particular practice is easier said than done. Clear off a desk, maintain that uh, perpetually. Another suggestion, start attending church on a consistent basis for a solid month. I said that because probably a full one-third of our congregation has never attended four consecutive Sundays. Now, there are some exceptions why people would have to miss work schedules and other things. We get it, but so many people have never even attended four consecutive Sundays. That's one solid month. But that's small, and that's a start. I would start there. Second, be on time. Be on time, meaning if we're scheduled to be somewhere at a certain time, then be there at that 
time. Or better still, be there some minutes before that time. Now, it's really not a good thing when we're starting something and I know who's going to be late. I can name the persons I know will be late and they never disappoint me. I'm convinced they will be late for the rapture. Punctuality is important. Be there on time. Third, do the hardest job first. Do the hardest job first. Doing that will prevent the hardest jobs from being left undone, which often happens. See, we tend to procrastinate on the hardest jobs, and we put it off and put it off, and then it doesn't get done. Do the hardest job first. That's the basic reason I eat vegetables first before I eat anything else. I do. Four, get organized. Get organized. At minimum, I suggest starting with a detailed, specific to-do list. To-do list. Uh, A to-do list is an excellent organizational instrument. And then after mastering a to-do list, graduate to more organization. Five, act on principle and not feelings. Principle and not feelings. We should do what we do primarily because it's the right thing to do and not just because we feel like doing it. Faithful people do not act according to feelings because feelings are fickle. Feelings change from one moment to the next. I got out of bed this morning, not because I felt like doing that. I I haven't felt good. I had to go to emergent care on Thursday. I've I've got something. I don't know. I'm on antibiotics. But I didn't feel like getting out of bed. But if you noticed, I got up this morning because it was the right thing to do. I don't permit my feelings to dictate to me what I do. Number six, practice self-denial. Practice self-denial. Sometimes we should deprive ourselves of something good on purpose. Example, I can't relate to this, but don't have coffee for five consecutive mornings. Now, that may throw some of you into a tailspin. You may have to call 911. I don't know. Or don't use the elevator for a solid month and climb the stairs instead. Not because those things are wrong. Those things aren't wrong. But because periodic... Self-denial cultivates personal discipline and faithfulness. And faithfulness is so essential to success. Second, notice these men demonstrated a fear of God. Notice this was not being afraid of people. This was not being afraid of circumstances. This is a fear of God. And don't misunderstand that concept. I've mentioned it often before. It doesn't mean we are to cower down and be terrified of God. The fear of God is a sincere and reverential respect for God. We are to have respect, reverential respect for God, something we don't see often enough. Being in awe of God is a rare characteristic. So these men had both qualities. So Nehemiah appointed them as his personal assistants. Then notice Nehemiah also selected more men to assist him. Next he chose some gatekeepers. Those gatekeepers are mentioned in verses 1 and 3. What value were those strong gates if no one was stationed at them and no one was controlling who was permitted to enter and exit Jerusalem through those gates? 
What good were those protective walls if the massive gates in those walls were open to just anyone who wanted to enter Jerusalem? To illustrate that, most of us have heard about the Great Wall of China. It is thousands of miles in length. Um, Contrary to popular opinion, it is not, not visible from outer space. That's an urban legend. Um, The Great Wall of China was penetrated on at least four different occasions. How did that happen? Each time, the guards stationed around that Great Wall were bribed. That's how it happened. So Jerusalem's gates and Jerusalem's wall were only as good as those people that guarded them. Verse 1, Then it was, when the wall was built, and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers... Nehemiah selected some men to act as gatekeepers, and in verse 3, those men were given specific instructions about when to open and close the gates. And I, Nehemiah, said to them, do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. The command was not to open the gates in the morning before the sun was up. The reason for that stipulation was to prevent someone from entering Jerusalem that had some ulterior evil motive at a time when Jerusalem's inhabitants would still be asleep, unprepared for battle, and unable to protect themselves. So the gatekeepers were to wait until the sun was up some, and then in the middle part of this verse, three, Nehemiah told those gatekeepers to shut and bar the doors. And while they, those gatekeepers, stand guard, let them, those gatekeepers, shut and bar the doors. So the gatekeepers were responsible for opening the gates, those doors, closing those gates and doors, and then locking those gates and doors. If those men weren't present to see that those gates were opened and closed and locked, then it would have given Jerusalem's enemies opportunities to come in unnoticed and do damage. So the gatekeepers' responsibilities were critical. Then, though, there were men selected to guard the wall. Nehemiah appointed two sets or two teams of guards. Both are mentioned in verse 3. And appoint guards, plural, from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So first Nehemiah selected some men and assigned them to guard a particular section of the wall. That section was his. He was responsible for that section. So men had designated areas on the wall assigned to them to guard. Then there was a second group of men selected and assigned to guard the section of the wall that was nearest their own residence. So if we put this all together, there were now gatekeepers that guarded the gates, opened them, closed them, locked them, and evaluated the people that came through them. Then there were probably hundreds of guards that patrolled different assigned sections of the wall and also guards that patrolled the wall near their houses so as to create a solid neighborhood watch. It would seem that Jerusalem was now safe from outside intrusion. Nehemiah had effectively fortified Jerusalem. The question is, and what does all that mean to us? One, it means that if our own government would ignore the progressive left and do all that Nehemiah did in building a wall, a wall, 
and then fortifying that wall using gatekeepers and guards, if our government would do even a facsimile of that, then there would be no crisis of epic proportions on the southern border. Amen. It wouldn't exist. The solution to solving the border crisis is found in the book of Nehemiah. But apparently no one in Washington, D.C. has bothered to read it. Wish I could be president for one day. One day. Second. And you better vote for me if I... <laughs> second, it means... This is more personal. It second means... If we don't guard and if we don't protect all that we have succeeded in doing, then Satan is going to come and take it from us. If we do not guard and do not protect all that we have achieved, all that we have, then Satan, this is for sure, is going to come and take it from us. And that would be applicable to all forms of achievement and success. Notice this principle. We must guard what we have gained so that we don't lose it. We must guard what we have gained so that we don't lose it. Most people have heard the phrase, use it or lose it, and that can happen. Now, as an example, believe it or not, I graduated from high school as a proficient typist. 55 plus words per minute on a manual, non-electric typewriter. Those instruments do still exist in museums. You can see one. But then after graduating from college and earning a degree in engineering, and over that time period in college writing copious mathematical equations, instead of typing actual sentences, those typing skills I had perfected in high school had completely vanished. And now I struggle on a keyboard a computer keyboard. I, I struggle. The reason that happened is because I didn't guard what I had gained. Some people have spent three and four semesters in college learning a foreign language, and then after graduation, never use that language, never speak that language, never converse in that language, and are now no longer literate in that language. Probably most of us can relate to this. Some people lose significant weight, go on this diet and lose pounds, and then in six months' time, regain that weight and then some. The principle is we must guard what we have gained so that we don't lose it. How often has achievement, how often has success been unprotected and unguarded, and Satan has come around and retrieved it for himself? Churches that once preached the true gospel now have ministers who preach a false gospel. Entire Christian denominations have apostatized and turned from and deviated from the historic Christian faith. I could spend hours citing example after example after example, just one small one. I read about a United Methodist congregation that during a recent Sunday morning worship service, I assume in an attempt to duplicate public libraries, brought up a drag queen on stage to read Bible stories to children. It gets worse. Most of the colleges founded in the U.S. colonies during the first part of our nation's existence were founded by churches, denominations, 
and to other religious groups. Four of the eight Ivy League schools were founded as Christian institutions. Prestigious Ivy League schools such as Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were founded as Christian schools. For instance, Harvard University originated as Harvard College, founded in 1636 by the Reverend John Harvard. The first pamphlet published from any American college was printed in London for Harvard College in 1643. In that 26-page book, the college was described and the preamble stated in part, quote, after God had carried us safe to New England and we had convenient places for God's worship and had settled the civil government, one of the things we longed for and looked for was to advance learning and to perpetuate it to posterity, and dreading to leave an itinerant ministry to the churches whenever our present ministry shall lie in the dust, and as we were thinking and consulting how to effect this great work, it pleased God to stir up the heart of one Mr. Harvard, a godly gentleman and a lover of learning, that living then living amongst us to give us one half of his estate and all of his library for this purpose. People, that's how Harvard University started. That booklet went on to read like this, quote, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life, let me repeat that, that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ who is eternal life. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning and seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek that wisdom of him. The historical documentation demonstrates that Harvard College, now Harvard University, was originally founded to train emerging men and women to both know and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Question, where is Harvard University at this moment? Harvard is recognized as one of this nation's most outstanding and, I might add, most expensive schools of higher learning. But it is an institution that indoctrinates its students in liberal progressivism, secular humanism, socialism, Marxism, and all things wokeism. The problem is, the problem is someone and or someone's forgot to guard Harvard. Someone forgot to stand guard at Yale. And someone else forgot to establish some safeguards and protections at Princeton. This has happened time and time after time. Nehemiah was determined that this wouldn't happen at Jerusalem. So he selected some assistants, some gatekeepers, and some guards to protect what these men and women had built. Step two is that Nehemiah established citizenship. Nehemiah established citizenship. Nehemiah had just enlisted leaders, as we just read, and now Nehemiah has established citizenship. The second section goes from verse 4 down through verse 69. I'm reading verses 4, 5, and 6, 
and then for obvious reasons, I'm not reading the remainder of this section. It is difficult. Verse 4, Now the city, Jerusalem, was large and spacious, but the people in it were few. That is a comparative statement. The people, the population, uh, the inhabitants were few in comparison to the size of Jerusalem itself. And the houses were not rebuilt. Verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return. Remember, Zerubbabel had been permitted to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. He rebuilt the temple. That was the first return, 538 B.C., and found written in it. Verse 6, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Reading through this long list of names in these next verses is extremely difficult because I cannot pronounce most of them. And don't sit there hiding behind some pious, sanctimonious facade. You can't either. <laughs> so I'm electing not to read these verses. Don't hold it against me. But this is, although we aren't reading all of it, this is an important section of Nehemiah. And for this reason, in Jerusalem, after this wall had been completed, it was important for someone to be able to prove he came from Jewish ancestors. Not to be able to document someone's Jewishness from different ancient recorded genealogies meant that he would have been considered a non-citizen in Jerusalem at that time. Now don't misunderstand, non-Jewish people, Gentiles were still permitted in Jerusalem and permitted to build houses and to function in society there uh, as residents in Jerusalem, unlike Mecca, Saudi Arabia, where Christians and Jews are forbidden, period. None of us, none of us would be permitted inside Mecca. It is Islamic from beginning to end. But still, the citizens in Jerusalem were all to be Jewish. Nehemiah wanted to repopulate, restore Jerusalem with people who were Jewish, and that is the reason for this genealogical listing. There are 10 different people groups mentioned in this passage. Group one were Zerubbabel's assistants. There are 11 men whose names are mentioned in verse seven that help Zerubbabel. Group two were different families that are mentioned from verse eight down through verse 25. Group three are the people mentioned according to different villages an actual geographical location mentioned in verses 27 down through verse 38. Group four are the priests found in verses 39 through 42. Group five are the Levites found in verse 43. Group six are the temple singers cited in verse 44. These singers had an important role in the restoration of Jerusalem. It's interesting, they're are at least 18 references to singers in this book of Nehemiah. Music was an integral part of God's program for this ancient nation. And music should also be an integral part of the church. And we should all understand that music is huge in heaven. Preaching, not so much there, but music, big time.
Group seven are the different gatekeepers mentioned in verse 45. Group eight are the different temple servants that are mentioned in verses 46 through 60. Group nine are a unique group of people, including some priests, that for some unknown reason were not able to prove their genealogies. And this is found from verse 61 down through verse 65. And group 10 are a miscellaneous assembly of servants mentioned in verse 67. Uh, If we read this entire section, we would see that even animals are mentioned in this listing. And the reason that animals are numbered in verses 68 and 69 is because animals were critical to the agricultural sector of that nation's economy. It is interesting that Nehemiah then mentions the total count in verses 66 and 67. Nehemiah said that there are some 42,360 persons plus 7,337 servants and then another 245 singers, meaning that altogether there were some 49,942 people. That means altogether Nehemiah was responsible for almost 50,000 people at Restored Jerusalem. The important thing in this section, though, was not to count the people, but to understand that those people counted. The important thing was not to count the people, although that happened, but to understand that those people counted, meaning that those individuals whose names are mentioned and those different people groups mentioned in Nehemiah 7 mattered. It is important to understand the significance of what those people had just done. In evacuating the Persian Empire, moving some 800 miles to Jerusalem in order to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, these people assumed a huge risk in attempting to rebuild this Jerusalem wall. We cited multiple times the opposition against them was enormous. These people, though, persevered and were determined to reestablish the Jewish nation, and God blessed them for assuming that risk. Risk is not unfamiliar to me. I've said before there are three basic categories of pastors. There are undertakers, and I don't mean men who just (laughs) serve at a funeral home complex and perform funerals and memorial services. No, these are morbid types that literally bury congregations. There are families in this church who've moved here from California where they had an excellent church until the pastor retired and called someone else. He kind of conned his way in and then proceeded to literally, literally destroy the congregation. It happens all the time. Second, there are caretakers. These are men that just want to maintain the status quo and just hang on until retirement. Rocking chair types. I find them uh, unacceptable. And then there are risk takers. Risk takers. These are men that are adventuresome for God. Not men that blur the fine line between faith and foolishness, but men that are willing to accept a significant risk that is needed to survive. From my personal experience, um, I am getting older, and I have found aging tends to reduce someone's willingness to risk. Because as we age, we want to be more comfortable. 
we're more into comfort than ever before. And risk pulls us out of our comfort zones. Sometimes, though, being comfortable is the worst possible place to be. A megachurch pastor and author, Larry Osborne, said this, For decades I have studied leaders in their ministries, hoping to find answers. I have focused on those that are successful, looking for their secrets, which I could apply to my own life and ministry. But what I have found has surprised me. Instead of secrets, principles, and patterns that guarantee success, I have found amazing diversity. Although there are certainly some common threads to be found, the most striking thing about highly effective leaders is how little they have in common. What one swears by, another warns against. Still, one trait stands out, and that is the willingness to risk. Highly successful leaders ignore conventional wisdom and take chances. Their success stories inevitably include a defining moment or a critical decision when they took a significant risk and thereby experienced a breakthrough. That's, that was exactly what these people in Nehemiah's time had done. These people had assumed significant risk and in doing that became the actual restorers of this ancient nation. And these names and these different groups are mentioned in Nehemiah 7 for that reason. Step three is that Nehemiah encouraged worship. Nehemiah encouraged worship. Nehemiah encouraged the reestablishment of worship in Jerusalem, found in verses 70 through 73. Nehemiah actually set up an ancient fundraising campaign. And according to these verses and a parallel passage from Ezra chapter 2, some of the Jerusalem personalities gave large and generous gifts and amounts to this fund. Others weren't able to give as large amounts but still sacrificed in giving what they gave. And all of this giving was done in order to reestablish worship at the temple that Zerubbabel had built. As governor, remember Nehemiah is now also acting as governor, Nehemiah himself gave and even the common people gave to this cause and some of them gave sacrificial offerings unto the Lord. Nehemiah himself gave 1,000 drachmas of gold, which would have been equivalent to 19 pounds of gold. Then some men are mentioned that altogether gave 20,000 drachmas of gold, which would have been equivalent to 375 pounds of gold. Don't forget, we both purchase and sell gold now. We purchase and sell gold by the ounce, not by the pound. And as, as of this past Friday, gold was selling for $1,952 per ounce. Some in this room... Um, some in our congregation invest in gold and silver. Unfortunately, I own neither. I have zero ounces of gold. Uh, these ancient people were giving sums of gold that measured in the hundreds of pounds. And then the common people mentioned altogether contributed another 20,000 drachmas of gold, another 375 pounds of gold, and in addition, two thousands pounds of silver were given, and then garments, 
fine garments of clothing for the priests and temple workers. There was an enormous amount of gold and silver and clothing. It was apparent that people were giving in a generous and and often sacrificial sense so that public worship could be reestablished in Jerusalem starting in Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah had encouraged these people to give to this temple fund in order to reestablish personal and public worship because worship mattered to those people and worship should matter to us. In conclusion, let me mention an important principle that Nehemiah and all of these people we just mentioned, Nehemiah and his co-laborers demonstrated, and that principle is this, an uncommon achievement comes from an uncommon commitment. An uncommon achievement comes from an uncommon commitment. An uncommon and unique achievement comes from people that have an uncommon commitment to seeing that happen. An uncommon and unique achievement in athletics, in music, in parenting, in academics, in business, in multiple ministries, in countless professions, comes from a people that have an uncommon commitment to bringing about that achievement. One small example, Simone Biles is an amazing gymnast She is probably one of the most dominant uh, gymnasts of all time. I said this is a small example because she's only four feet, eight inches in height. She is tiny. She won her first Olympic medals in 2016 in Rio de Janeiro. Before that Olympics, though, she had trained more than 10,000 hours before she ever won an Olympic medal. 10,000 plus hours. People, that's an uncommon commitment. And an uncommon commitment is something most people don't have and have never had. And that's the reason it's called uncommon. I should mention that the name of our sermon podcast and our sermons are on podcasts, and you can find them there. And I think one of the advantages of podcasts is you can vary the speed of the sermon. You can listen to me at one and a half speed or twice double speed. And And I don't actually sound like Alvin the Chickmuck. You can actually understand. But the name of our sermon podcast is called Uncommon Preaching. Uncommon Preaching. Uncommon Preaching, though, requires an uncommon commitment to sermon preparation. And I would hope, I would hope that is apparent. Before the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was an underground house church there that had received one copy of the Gospel of Luke. One copy. It was the only scripture most of those Christians had ever seen. Just one copy of that Gospel was sent to that entire house church. The Christians in this house church then carefully tore or cut that Gospel of Luke into smaller pieces, different portions of different chapters and then distributed those smaller pieces of that gospel among the members of the church. The intent was for the people to memorize, completely memorize the portion of scripture that they had been given. And then come to church on the next Lord's Day, turn in that portion of scripture that they had just memorized so someone else could receive it, and then receive another portion of scripture to bring home and memorize that 
Each of them would do this on a continuous basis until in just a matter of months, most of this underground church had completely, verbatim, word for word, memorized the entire Gospel of Luke. That's an uncommon commitment. On one Sunday, and this is how it happens, even in China now, in the underground church, these Christians started arriving inconspicuously in small groups of just two and three groups, people at a time, throughout the day. I mean, this happens over hours. And that's done in order not to arouse the suspicion of KGB informers. Then just before dusk, um, all of them were safely inside this room. The windows were closed and the door was locked. The congregation started singing a hymn, quietly though, because they didn't want to be detected. They sang quietly, but sang with deep, deep emotion, sang from their hearts. And then suddenly that door was pushed open, and in stormed two soldiers with armed, loaded, semi-automatic weapons. One of those men shouted, right now, everyone, up against the wall with your hands over your head. He said, if you want to renounce Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity. If you do so, you have permission to leave now. It was unfortunate, but two or three of the congregants left, and then another left. Then after a few more seconds, two more vanished into the night. Then those KGB agents said, this is your last chance. Either you renounce your faith in Jesus Christ or remain behind and suffer the consequences. So another Christian left. And then two more left in embarrassed silence, covering their faces with their hands. But no one else in the room moved. The vast percentage of people in that congregation remained. Parents with small children trembling beside them, holding on to them. Those parents looked down and tried to say something to reassure them. But on the inside, those that remained faithful fully expected to be gunned down or at least, at minimum, arrested and imprisoned. And then after a few moments of complete silence, the second soldier closed the door behind all of those that had left and he looked back into the room at all of those Christians that stood there against the wall and he said this, Keep your hands up, but this time, keep them up in praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, trust us, we are also Christians. We were sent to another house church a month ago to arrest a group of believers, and then the other soldier interrupted him and said, but instead we were converted ourselves. He said this, we have learned from our brief Christian experience that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be fully trusted. People, that is an uncommon commitment. And that is the commitment Nehemiah and his people had in restoring Jerusalem, and that is the same commitment to Jesus Christ each one of us ought to have. Let's bow our heads. Father, I thank you once more for this amazing man, Nehemiah. 
What a role model for each of us. He had an uncommon commitment and so did those people that assisted him in rebuilding that wall and reestablishing Jerusalem and then guarding it and protecting it against invasion and anything that might bring it harm. God, we need to be more vigilant like he was. We need to be more alert and aware. Satan is throwing everything he has against the church. Everything. We must protect sound doctrine. We must protect biblical teaching. We must protect holiness, practical, personal sanctification, this experiential, ongoing process whereby we separate ourselves more and more to God and separate ourselves more and more away from sin. God, we have got to do a better job. We don't want to lose what we have achieved. In fact, we'd like to gain some more ground against the enemy, and I pray you'd help us do that. I just pray, God, that this message will have made an indention into our hearts and our minds and will make a difference in us starting today after we leave this place. Again, I thank you for the privilege of, of teaching your word. I thank you that at this point, at this juncture, we still have religious freedom. But if we don't have an uncommon commitment, I don't know how much longer that freedom will last. So God, help us to do what we're supposed to do. And I thank you and I praise you in the very special and mighty name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Amen.